and welcome back to Vandenberg Flash Focus, your source for fast and focused foreign policy analysis on breaking news from around the world. Last night, the United States and the United Kingdom carried out airstrikes against Houthi militant sites in Yemen. For weeks now, the Houthis have been attacking civilian shipping, along with U.S. and allied warships, in the Red Sea in an attempt to blockade Israel in response to that country's military operations against Hamas. I'm excited to have Captain John Conrad on the show today to discuss the Red Sea blockade and the U.S.-led coalition response. Uh, John is a maritime journalist, a former drill ship captain, and the CEO of the top maritime news website, G-Captain. John, welcome to Flash Focus. Thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, So, John, uh, give us a little background for those who haven't been paying attention until they woke up this morning and saw headlines about U.S. and U.K. airstrikes in Yemen. What's been going on in the Red Sea for the past several months? Right. So following the uh, attack on Israel uh, by Hamas, the Houthis of Yemen uh, decided that they are going to assist Hamas by preventing ships that are linked to Israel from getting through the Red Sea. They have used a number of different types of uh, weapons, uh, primarily drones, but they have also used anti-ship cruise missiles and anti-ship ballistic missiles and uh, boats in order to uh, try to take these ships. The first ship that was taken was the Galaxy Leader, um, a helicopter with uh, Houthi operatives uh, landed on top of the ship and uh, they stole the ship piracy style. That ship is still in captivity with the crew by the Houthis. At that point, the shipping companies uh, realized uh, they were or thought they were going back to a Somali pirate type situation like we saw with Captain Phillips and the uh, Maersk, Alabama 10 years ago. A lot of shipping companies put armed guards on board to prevent these boardings by the Houthis, at which point the Houthis switched tactics to these drones and ballistic uh, missiles. There are 34 navies in the Red Sea as part of Maritime Task Force uh, to prevent uh, for maritime security, uh, anti-piracy primarily in the, the Red Sea. But uh, a lot of these, uh, sh- a lot of these navies and the security teams uh, have no capabilities of shooting down anti-air uh, missiles and drones. So um, the U.S. Navy stepped up first with the USS Kearney and started uh, running interference for the, the ships and shooting down uh, drones. But there are limited numbers of anti-air missiles on a U.S. Navy destroyer. And uh, there was a close call by the Hong Kong flag uh, Maersk ship Gibraltar, uh, where a missile landed very close to their stern, at which point Maersk said, we are not sending ships through the Red Sea anymore. And they began diverting around Africa. A number of the large container lines started going around Africa at that point as well. But many tankers were still going through um, the Red Sea. We did see one attack on a tanker that was closer to India. It was about 200 miles off of India, and we're not sure who perpetrated that attack. But uh, they've been advancing. Um, 
the United States decided to uh, go forth with this Operation Prosperity Guardian now to protect the ships, uh, but only a small percentage of the uh, navies that were of the 34 navies that were already participating in anti-piracy decided to join the United States. And then the, the Houthis saw this Operation Prosperity Guardian and um, last week, it decided that it was going to um, focus its attack on four uh, U.S. flagged U.S. merchant marine ships that were going through um, uh, the Red Sea. It was the most co complicated and uh, coordinated attack on shipping in, in recent memory. And that um, uh, precipitated... Uh, the, the president uh, deciding to uh, retaliate on the Houthis last night. And another piece of important context here for our listeners, uh, the Houthis are, you know, an Iranian-backed uh, military proxy group, uh, much like Hamas and Hezbollah. That's why there's there's that kinship there. Uh, they're funded and supplied from Tehran. Um, and so we're really seeing, you know, an American rival here, using uh, a proxy organization uh, to paralyze global trade and to attack Americans at sea. Um, John, I, I wonder if you could put this in a little bit of uh, bigger context for us. Um, in terms of traffic through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, you know, what proportion of uh, global shipping are we talking about? What are the values we're talking about here economically? Uh, and what have been some of the commercial ramifications of, of big shipping carriers uh, diverting uh, away from the Red Sea and the Suez Canal? Right. The, you know, and this is not the only problem right now is, is part of the larger context. So we have drought levels in, in the Panama. We have some ports being overloaded in South Africa for ships going around Africa. And then there are obviously uh, some political problems in Argentina for ships trying to go around South America. Uh, and the and you know all in the context of the Black Sea and a ship hitting a mine in the Black Sea uh, a couple of weeks ago, so uh, this this is an important uh, trade route. It's uh, the 12 to 15 percent of uh, global traffic. Uh, the first ships that were diverted were these mega uh, container ships. So these ships have gotten uh, much larger over the past uh, 10 years. Um, when I started in, in this industry, a 3,000 TEU, that's 20-foot equivalent unit, one of these shipping containers, uh, 3,000 was a, a large ship. Now the largest ships have over 20,000 TEUs. And with that many TEUs, you have valuable goods on board, uh, could be a billion, even more dollars worth of goods on board. So to ensure that, um, insurance uh, has gone into war risk insurance. Uh, you have to pay a higher rate to go through these areas. Uh, the tankers have still been going through because even a um, you know very large uh, contain uh, tanker, um, a super tanker hold can hold about a, a million barrels of oil. So at seventy dollars a a barrel or you know, that at $70 million worth of oil, which is nothing compared to the billion dollars plus of goods that could be on the container ship. So the containers ha have all gone around. Now we have a, uh, during the port congestion crisis uh, during COVID, 
these container lines made record profits and they went into a building spree. They started building a lot more ships. Um, at the same time, these environmental regulations uh, were set to go in place. So they've been steaming faster. They've been going at fast speed to kind of position all the cargo around before these environmental regulations come into effect uh, right now, this month mm. of this year, where they were going to slow down. So you have them slowing down, and now you have ships going around Africa. About 90, over 90% of these large container ships are going around Africa. Um, it, it's adding a week or two, depending on their speed, to their transit time. It's an extra million dollars of fuel. And uh, obviously that million dollars of fuel is, but you're burning, you're putting a million dollars worth of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, but that takes away the excess capacity. And now if the ship starts slowing down, that removes all the excess capacity that has entered the market. So now it's become a very tight uh, shipping market. At the same time, uh, the ship, everything is, you know, it's a Lego puzzle, uh, Lego puzzle, this logistics, right? So containers arrive at a very specific time and they're loaded on the next ship and they're distributed um, at transshipment hubs. So if a ship doesn't arrive on time, it, it starts having a domino effect on the whole supply, supply chain. That is the container market. Um, because of the new environmental regulations at the UN International Maritime Organization, tankers, even though tankers have made a considerable amount of money the last few years, they are really worried about being phased out by the UN. So they have not gone into this building spree. So coming into this Suez crisis, we had a very tight um, uh, supply of tankers in the market, particularly the clean product tankers. These are the tankers that move diesel and jet fuel, gasoline. There are very few of these tankers. Going into the crisis here, a lot of those tanker companies have decided to continue through anyway because their cargo isn't as valuable and they can pay those insurance rates. But we've seen with this a tank, Intertanko, which is the largest consortium of tank ship owners, uh, they have decided, uh, advised their members this morning, do not go through the Suez. So unlike these container ships, they there is not excess supply in the market and um, tankers go a lot slower. They go about uh, 10 to 15 miles an hour, 15 at the maximum. Um, so they can't just increase speed uh, to make up time. So that's that's what we're looking at right now. The supply chain and all the container traffic is in 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 dire trouble. And now we are seeing this domino effect going into tankers and other types of cargo. Looking back to uh, you know the Red Sea uh, specifically and and some of the efforts to mitigate this, I know you've written several articles about. Uh, the U.S.-led convoy operations and and naval operations to protect uh, shipping through the Bab el-Mendeb and uh, and the Red Sea. You mentioned Operation Prosperity Guardian um, uh, earlier. Uh, walk us through what have the United States and uh, and partner countries been trying to do to you know mitigate this uh, threat in the Red Sea. Uh, where have they succeeded, and and what are some of the difficulties they've uh, run into? Where have they fallen short? 
well, we, we'd be here for an hour if I was going to discuss <laughs> all of the difficulties this operation has gone through. But basically, you remember back when the, the Hong Kong flagged Maersk Gibraltar got hit, Maersk uh, panicked, and these shipping companies have a, uh, a huge amount of political sway within the European Union. Maersk is the biggest company in Denmark. You have CMA CGM. It's a very large French company. And then... Um, uh, MSC has significant ties to Italy and is a, is a Swiss company. So they, they have a lot of money and not just the political influence because they are so large and, and, and part of the state organization, but because all of the industry in Europe really uh, requires, uh, you know, these materials show up on time, just in time logistics. So there was a lot of political pressure on the originally when that MERS ship got hit. They made a request out to uh, the White House saying, can you increase protection of these ships? And Admiral Kirby went on the TV the next day and said, uh, we, we do not have the naval resources. We cannot do additional protection. Uh, if you want to reroute, that's fine. It's not really our, uh, you know, our concern. Um, at which point, Maersk then decided they are not only going to reroute their Chinese and Panamanian and Liberian flagships, they are also going to hold up their U.S. flagships. So the U.S. flagships are unique because they are guaranteed protection by the Navy. So it wasn't a concern for the White House originally. But then Maersk held back on these ships. Maersk claims it's because they did not feel they got enough protection from the Navy. These ships, there are only 85 left in international trade in the world. There aren't many ships, but they are the ships that deliver all of the supplies to our military bases. So now, unfortunately, our military also runs on this just in time. So they predicted, uh, you know, within three days, they were going to have shortages in our military bases. There was a panic in the White House. They decided to go with this Operation Prosperity Guardian. Elements within the Pentagon came up with a different plan saying, hey, we're going to initially uh, because we're legally obligated to prioritize the U.S. flagships and get them through in convoys. And then whoever joins our coalition, France, um, U.K., we will protect their ships and then we will start slowly opening it up to other flags. The White House overruled that. Um, the Secretary of Defense came out and said, we're not going to do that plan. We are going to protect all of the ships that go through. And the Red Sea is the size of California. I mean, this is a large area. And we've had shipbuilding problems and, and availability problems in the Navy because we focused on, uh, you know, Army spending and Air Force spending after this 20-year global war on terror. So we really didn't have the ships. Uh, White House insisted that that they try, and the Pentagon really backed out. You have the, the, the Navy, it's really been the focus of CENTCOM. The Navy itself has not commented. We have not seen any Marines be deployed. Until yesterday, we saw no Air Force. And the Army, which is uh, delegated to provide the land component of choke points, we have a, a base right there in Djibouti, they, they've, been, they've been nowhere near. So not only have the foreign allies had trouble, but we've had trouble with the various services within the Pentagon. Then the White House went out to all the allies and out of those 34 that are already there, 
only 10 decided to participate. Some like the Netherlands and Canada said that we're only sending officers. Uh, Bahrain and the Seychelles have no warships. So it was really up to the, the UK, France, and the United States. And French, uh, the French came in and endorsed the, the Navy plan and said, hey, we're going to prioritize our own ships. We're not going to, we're not going to let everyone in at first. Let's get our ships through, and then we will look at opening this up. And the White House uh, supposedly said no. The French quit the operation and started convoying their own ships. Now, the French just said they have come back into the Operation Prosperity Guardian, but they are not taking orders from the United States. And French, France did not participate in the strikes yesterday. Those strikes were by the U.S. and the U.K. So we've kind of defaulted back to, uh, you know, limited number of ships, but, you know, we're still trying to protect all the ships that go through. And a lot of these ships are Chinese flag. China has warships in the area, and they are not responding to uh, Mayday calls. They are not helping with the situation. We have all the um, dark fleet ships illegally transferring oil from Russia in the Black Sea to India and China. They are going through um, uh, the Red Sea, and our, our Navy protecting them as well despite the fact that China and Russia are, are not participating in, in this operation. So out of all the allies in the world, and by the way, our Asian allies who have been very good friends of the Navy, um, Australia, Japan, Korea, uh, when they were asked, they basically said, hey, we would love to participate, but with these increased tensions in China, we cannot afford to divert any warships at this time. Um, so we, we just don't have enough, uh, ships, Sam, uh, we don't have enough partners. We don't have enough ships and we don't have enough participation, even from the other branches of our own military to, to protect all the ships that are going through. So last night we heard, you know, from the Pentagon and the, the UK ministry of defense that, uh, the U S and the United Kingdom, uh, conducted a series of airstrikes against, uh, I think it's 60 Houthi targets ashore at 16 different locations in Yemen. And these are places that were used to launch missiles and drones at, at merchant ships and, and kind of stage these attacks, uh, through ships transit uh, against tr ships transiting the Bob El Mendeb Strait. Uh, do you see, uh, this as being, um, you know, a, a, a enough to uh, stem the tide or, or a step in the right direction uh, to secure, uh, you know, free passage and transit uh, through the Red Sea again? Or, or do you think we're going to see, uh, you know, more sustained uh, naval operations going forward? It's, it's impossible to tell. It's really up to uh, the Houthis and their backers who are Iran if they have the capabilities and really the desire to step up these attacks we've seen, you know, and if they want to keep it at the Red Sea or expand it, we saw Iran seize an oil tanker yesterday in the Persian Gulf. Um, and then you have to look at the, the number one provider of money and, you know, importer of Iranian oil is China. So you can speculate that China has some say in what is going on here. Um, what their intentions are, it's impossible to say. What we do know is in the very short term, it is making the problem a lot worse. Like I said 
before, the majority of tankers were continuing to, to use the Red Sea. And then today, Intertanko and a number of shipping tanker companies um, th that were going through have decided they are going to reroute. There are four tankers just rerouted this morning. So uh, I think in the very short term, uh, it's going. The problem's going to get a lot worse as everyone kind of waits and sees what this reaction is, and then whether it gets worse or not depends on the intention of the Houthis and Iran, and what capabilities are left. We don't know yet how many of these drone sites and military targets. Uh, you know, if we we know the Air Force attacked 60 individual targets last night. Did they get all the drones? We don't know yet. So one last question to round us out. Um, you know, policymakers in Washington aren't um, necessarily known for paying a lot of attention uh, to the sea or or to maritime trade. I think, you know, for the last uh, 20 or 30 years, um, uh, kind of free and open uh, commerce and, and uh, free transit of the seas has kind of been taken for granted. But in the past, you know, year or two, um, uh, we've really seen that start to change um, in terms of, you know, obviously this in the Red Sea that we're discussing, um, a lot of the uh, questions revolving around uh, the Russian efforts to stop uh, Ukraine from exporting uh, grain and other goods through the Black Sea. Uh, do you think we're likely to see, uh, you know, more more uh, attacks or blockades of commerce and trade at, at different choke points around the world in the near future? Absolutely. Um, you know, the seas have always been dangerous and there have always been problems, but the number of geopolitical problems is obviously increasing. As my friend, uh, Dr. Sal Mercagliano, who is a maritime historian, said, uh, repeatedly says, it's no longer an occasional black swan event where we're getting uh, dive bombed by black swans uh, lately. So they, these these are increasing. Every, uh, you know, intelligent person I've talked to uh, thinks that they're going to continue to increase, but it's not just the increase alone. We've always had problems before. Think back to the Tom Hanks movie, um, uh, Captain Phillips, where the immersed ships got attacked by pirates. We had an overwhelming number of Navy ships. We had a C-130 uh, parachute Navy SEALs down and retake that ship. Uh, we were able to form this coalition very well. Um, we had an abundance of talent and hulls and partnerships in order to solve that problem. That's in stark contrast to what's happening today. So the geopolitical problems are going up and the capabilities, the number of hulls, the age of the hulls, uh, all the metrics in the Navy and our maritime response is going down at the same time. Meanwhile, obviously, China is building a huge uh, Navy. They now have more hulls than the United States Navy, all concentrated in one area. So it's a it's a very uh, dangerous situation, and it's a situation that policymakers have to wake up to. Uh, look, we we do this before every war. Before World War One, we didn't have enough uh, ships. Before World War Two, we didn't have enough ships. But you have to look at the uh, Merchant Marine Act of 1936. And we had a navalist in the White House with FDR, was very interested in merchant marine and Navy. And he built back up production starting in 1936. And we had enough time to do that. We don't have that consensus now. The Biden administration has been 
uh, kept the Navy kind of at bay. I was just on the military um, picture site, uh, DVIDS, looking for photos of uh, President Biden with the Navy. There have been very few even photo opportunities, uh, let alone uh, smart policy. We had, um, and the National Security Council closed its maritime desk at day one of uh, the the problem. We've had Pete Buttigieg is in charge of that connection between the Navy and the civilian maritime sector. He's been completely absent from this conversation. Uh, so there isn't much desire from the administration. There is increasing desire from uh, Congress. Uh, people like Representative uh, uh, Waltz has been working in the um, House Armed Services Committee on maritime bills and within the Navy itself. Secretary Del Toro had a recent speech at Harvard where he said, the Navy can't fix all these problems ourselves. We need to rebuild shipbuilding, rebuild the Merchant Marine, and look at the financial ties. Where all, why are all these Wall Street firms investing in Chinese shipping companies and Chinese shipyards? Um, so there are pockets of real concern, but they're they're not making much progress without administrative support. Um, this administration is is a little bit more awake than the Obama administration, which really did absolutely nothing in the maritime trade except some ocean national parks. Uh, the Trump administration tried. There were three ship owners in. The, uh, in the cabinet of the Trump administration. Wilbur Ross was a well-known ship owner. Rex Tillerson had the Exxon fleet. And Elaine Chao, um, you know, her family is uh, has a big shipping company. Um, and they, they tried initially to, you know, the National Security Council opened a maritime desk. Um, Pete Navarro at the White House was very involved in this. They got a, a well-respected Navy admiral to run the maritime administration. Um, but you know, a the the administration got uh, distracted. Uh, Jim Mattis, his dad was a merchant mariner, uh, but he left. Rex Tillerson left, and then Elaine Chao got a lot of criticism, especially from the New York Times about her family's ties to the Chinese shipping industry, and she kind of backed away. And then the administration sort of fell apart. So we had a real good try in the beginning of Trump, and it end, it did not end well, and. At that time, Congress had no real interest. And then with uh, Biden, we have some interest within the Navy and Congress, but the administration uh, doesn't have interest and doesn't really have maritime expertise. You know, the shipping companies are are very interesting and not well known, but extremely powerful political players. And if you don't have those connections and the ties to the shipping industry, it's hard to fix these policies. You know, I'm a merchant marine ship captain, and there is not one ship captain uh, anywhere in the Pentagon working at any of the think tanks or in any of the uh, war colleges. So as we try to fix these problems, we have so few domestic maritime expertise that there aren't really people available to help get these policies through. So a lot of the policies that we are seeing put through are not based on expert opinion. And some of them are actually making the problem worse. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And 
any opportunity I can to get the word out on this stuff because it, it, it's important. I encourage your, uh, your, your, your viewers to really learn a little bit more about the shipping industry and these shipping companies because it is important uh, for world trade and it does have a major effect on large things like inflation, European energy crisis, the world food crisis. Those are all transportation problems. So thank you for having me. Thanks again, and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Flash Focus is a production of the Vandenberg Coalition. To connect and stay up to date on our work, follow our account on X at Vandenberg Co. Or visit www.vandenbergcoalition.org to learn more and subscribe to our weekly newsletter on foreign policy and national security, Beyond the Water's Edge. Until next time, I'm Samuel Byers, and this is Vandenberg Flash Focus.